Hello everybody, I apologize. I was having some technological difficulties. So if you can bear with me, I will wait and see until my sister can join me and then we will begin our conversation for today. So I'm just waiting for my sister to see if she is able to join us and then we will um, commence with our conversation for today. There you are. Hi, Nita. Yeah. Hi. I think this works out better. Are you so driving from your phone? Yeah. 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 For some reason, Facebook doesn't like my computer. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, hello, everyone. Um, my name is Anita Garber, and welcome to my second live conversation for my podcast, Present Spaces. I created Present Spaces this year to engage in conversations about race, spirituality, and relationships so that we together can learn and grow and transform our world a little bit at a time. <clears throat> Today I'm excited to be here with my twin sister, Benita Croyle, who uses she, her, and hers pronouns and is the founder of the Ebenezer Project to discuss adoption and identity and our experiences growing up as transracial adoptees. Because we both get screen fatigue, like I'm sure many of you do as well, we decided to break our conversation about adoption up into three 25-ish minute segments. Um, and so this week is the second conversation. Um, if you missed our first conversation, you can see either my Facebook page or Bonita's Facebook page, or it's also gonna be on my blog um, or my podcast present spaces um, but this will also be posted to our walls after the live um, before we get started i want to quickly run through some quick housekeeping notes thank you number one thank you so much for supporting us today and for holding space if you feel like engaging we ask that you drop respectful comments in the com in the chat or engage in the reaction icons um, these conversations are difficult to have and for some of you may be triggering. Please feel free to step away from the live if you need to and engage in whatever self-care you need to. Bonnie and I are both domestic transracial adoptees and we were adopted by a white Mennonite, not Amish, <laughs> family um, when we were four years old. And while Bonnie and I have um, very different experiences, um, this is our second um, conversation and having a public discussion about our adoption and um, some of our experiences growing up. As you can imagine, Bonnie and I are, have very different opinions um, <laughs> yes. and experiences, um, which I'm sure some of that will come through in our live just as well as it sometimes does in our conversations with one another because we disagree with each other quite vehemently, but um, to love is not I mean I have to agree with you, but it means I want to lean in and engage and understand you in a, in a more in a whole way. Um, so that's okay that we disagree. 
Um, and part of what these conversations are about is having difficult conversations and leaning in and understanding and hearing um, diverse perspectives um, and experiences and ways that build relationships and cultivate learning spaces. Bonnie, is there anything that you want to add or do you just want to dive right into the three questions we have for today? Um, I just want to say thank you to everyone who is here today or watching this at a later time. Um, on my screen, I only see reactions and just the fact that Anita's watching. So I'm sure that there's other people here today um, and just want to thank you for holding space with us as we go about these conversations. So the first question that I have, Bonnie, um, is what are two or three facets of your adoption journey that have been essential or most influential for you in discovering your identity? Yeah, and I also want to say um, for those in the audience, I'm very type A, so I meticulously take notes in preparation for these conversations. So if you see me looking down, it's just me referencing my notes because that helps me stay organized, especially when I'm having conversations that um, are a little bit hard or difficult. So I, I will just own, I have like a stack of papers here. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, it's tough for me to narrow down my journey uh, to just a couple specific things that have impacted me. Um, the journey towards becoming is a journey of a lifetime. And I'm sure that tomorrow, or let's be honest, even in a few hours from now, and probably definitely in a few years, I'm going to have some different opinions. I'm going to have some new learned um, experiences, and I'm going to change and, and grow and evolve. Um, so that being said, as of this moment, I can identify a few critical turning points in my life that have occurred and reoriented me on this journey that I'm on today. The first moment that I can pinpoint is not a conscious memory, but a feeling, grief. As I mentioned in my first live, the journey of holding grief and loss at the same time as placement and love has been difficult. This isn't a snub just a lived reality. Learning to live well with grief hasn't been easy, and I'm still not there. But the attempt to live well with grief has been especially formative for me as I seek to live with grace and name what has been, what is, and what will and continues to be. The second facet that I think has been important to me on the journey has been my relationship with God and having supportive people in my life who have loved, supported, accompanied me, and challenged me, and perhaps equally important, committed to learning new things alongside me and loving me. Honestly, Anita, I can't imagine being adopted without you. And I realize how rare and lucky it is that we were adopted together. That isn't always the case. And to have someone to unpack grief with um, has been really important with, for me. And I know that we definitely disagree and don't always have the same opinions, but, but the <laughs> fact that we were adopted together and we can share this experience in very similar ways has been really powerful for me. Um, and that has been a gift. I also remember how powerful it was. You didn't know I was gonna say it. Uh, <laughs> I also remember how powerful it was in 2015 to visit my biological mother. That visit was the first time I had seen her in 17 years. And I had the opportunity to take that trip with both my mom and my husband. I will never forget that trip 
or sharing memories of that journey with two siblings, Joella and Asher and my dad, who waited up all night. I think it was close to midnight when we finally arrived, which was a particularly big deal because my dad goes to bed routinely at nine every night. So to have them stay up and asking me questions and holding space as I processed that trip was especially meaningful. And I'll carry those memories for sure with me for the rest of my life. I also name and carry the fact that so many adoptees do not have that opportunity. In fact, reunion isn't always an option. It doesn't always work out. And sometimes it is violent. Those are difficult and deeply painful realities. And I hold and carry those stories and realities with me as well. I think the third thing that has been formative for me is having people walk into my life and help me think in new ways, just through the gift of their relationship. I think of a former professor from college, Marissa King, and the countless ways she shifted my understanding and called forward critical thinking in new ways. I think of so many close friends who have walked with me, called me out and in, and continue to surround and uplift me as I continue to move forward in the ways in which God is calling me. I think of my husband, Ian, and his gentle, steady faithfulness. I think of people who changed my life when I was 14 years old and worked at Camp Deer Park. I think of early teachers and community members that loved me and advocated on my behalf. I think of the ancestors that went before us and the countless works and legacy that I have had the opportunity to learn from and benefit from. I think of my current therapist and the mental health professionals who have supported me on this journey. I think of three cousins, John and Tirza and Chantel, who continue to show up and support me in ways that are deeply meaningful, and my siblings, one of which Joella, who shows up and advocates in her gentle, loving, and steady, faithful way. Of my courageous and hilarious sister-in-loves, Chantry and Brittany. And last but not least, I think of parents who are open to loving and thinking in new ways, even when I challenge them fairly overtly, and a biological family who has and still is, welcomes me with open arms. What about you, Anita? Well, I, I, I want to say, well, that's exactly how I would respond, um, which is true. And I think in the previous live that I had spoken briefly about my experiences as a TRA, transracial adoptee, being or like being born with a broken heart and expected to be whole. Um, and while I see that there's true, I, I find that uh, I've been finding wholeness and a lot of um, healing through two specific things. Um, the two things that I would say that I've been the most formative and consistent in regards to impact and importance for me would be uh, number one, my faith, uh, my relationship with God, and secondly, my uh, various mentors, um, and just the random people who God places in your life for seasons. They might be there for a day, they might be there for a week, they might be there for five years, but yeah, there's there's so many. Um, so the first one, uh, my first encounter experience with God, I would say, um, or the what comes to mind was 
it happened in second grade and I don't know where exactly we were other than we were at some church function and I don't know if it was with Eastern Mennonite Missions if a yes team had come back from their nine month um, missions trip I, or what, what the context was. But I remember sitting in worship on the floor in the back and God communicating with me that it was a safe space mm. and that I didn't have to have the right words. I didn't have to be anything. I didn't have to do anything. I could just be, and it was safe and I was known and I was loved and I was whole. And I think for me, that was huge because here I was a second grader trying to fit my life in a box that I quite didn't feel like I fit and didn't feel like I was understood. And here was this space and this being that said, I here, here's a safe space. Worship for me from that point on became a very, very safe space. Um, and that was, a, I would probably say my first introduction to God on a personal level. Um, and I would say my second experience that would kind of confirm or like go after that was with God was our near death experience with the rip current. And God and I had a conversation because um, I remember going up and down and up and down. And like, I, I felt like this was the end of my life. Like, yeah. I knew we had, and for, we had swimming lessons mm -hmm. for years, <laughs> years, three yeah. years, maybe. I don't and know. for context, if um, I can really so, quickly, Anita, just a, a quick little snippet of context there. Um, that was fifth grade uh, when we were, oh. yeah, we were in fifth grade and we were at Cape Hemlopen in um, Green, uh, I said Greenwood, Delaware, but it's not, it's uh, in Delaware. And we were on a trip with our school. Um, it was a class trip and you and I and a couple other had been swept out in a rip current and the other three made it to shore. And you made it to shore before I did, but yeah, it was, um, it was very critical um and and very scary terrifying that yeah terrifying um and so i knew that like i felt i very much fully felt like this was the end of my life and so i said god like my parents are practical people <laughs> and they believe in you so there must be something to this so like let's make a deal if you save me like i will do anything go anywhere that kind of conversation and so i went under and i felt someone tug my hand and the next thing I knew I was sitting on shore. And so I was the next, I guess, if that was fifth grade, I always say it's seventh or eighth grade, but I don't know why. I, that was a you felt mature at that time. <laughs> yes. Um, so for the next, I guess, eight years, I was like, God, you saved me, but why? Like, what is, what is my purpose? I know that there is one because you wouldn't have, well, and my reasoning was you wouldn't have saved me if there wasn't a purpose. Um, and so that would lead me to mentor type people like in high school, it was, um, John Heinley, the then uh, campus youth pastor, who was very, um, he was a safe space for me to ask all of my questions about what God, what God and I were talking about and why my life didn't make sense and help me find purpose and ground me and be very affirming, but also encourage me to look deeper and to think more critically. Um, and then it was when I went to after high school, it was leadership from the con supporting congregations of um, my service adventure team, like the congregations from Crucified and the gathering in Johnstown, PA. Then it was Camp Hebron staff. 
um, and numerous pastors and teachers and professors such as Pastor Jason, the Reverend Dr. Stephen Gallagher, um, and at my, uh, my most recent educational institution, um, Dr. Charlene Lane, who have and are walking with um, and alongside me, calling me out and calling me to think bigger, to, to be more bold, um, to love and to live more deeply and in a more holistic way. Um, they have been incredible supports. And also just the people who show up for a day, the strangers that you meet and you're like, I don't know your name, but you impacted my life in a deeply meaningful way. And I, I wouldn't be the person I am today if it were not for any, all of those people. Yeah. It's amazing when you so think about like random, right? Um, I like that you included that, um, the, the miracles that happen every day and the, and the chance encounters and the gift of relationship. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. there's some people that I've met that they tell me that they don't have a name, mm. but our interaction is something that it, it's pivotal for mm. me. But I'm like, when I think back on them, I'm like, they didn't have a mm. name or they, that was what they communicated. I'm like, so you're a random, miraculous person. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. yeah. Um, so my second question, um, how, if at all, has faith influenced your uh, identity formation as a transracial adoptee? Yeah, so a lot of these questions are hard for me to pinpoint in exact specific terms, and this one is exactly the same. Um, I think it's hard for me to distinguish the beginning of my faith journey from that of my transracial identity, simply because growing up, it seemed to me that faith was so enmeshed in what we were doing. It was, in my opinion, a practical faith. And perhaps that is also a nod to our rural upbringing. God was a God that provided rain for our crops. There was a steady usefulness to God so it made sense that God was someone that I prayed to when I wanted practical things. Quick yeah. um, interjection there. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to notice that we grew up to note that we grew up on a farm, and so we had like a half acre garden. Um, well, we have fifteen acres of land, and depends on what your definition of garden is, because sometimes we'd have garden, and then mom would just call it weeds. So like. <laughs> acre of space where plants were occasionally planted and sometimes more even more rarely weeded mm -hmm. yeah so there was a lot of i mean between that and the orchard and yeah there was a lot of uh various gardens <laughs> um but there was a steady usefulness to god um so it made sense that when i wanted something i prayed to if it was practical um for example I wanted a new doll sister for my very favorite doll, a wick and a ball. I definitely wanted an American girl, Addie would do. And God was the God that I prayed to when I wanted the opportunity to meet my biological mother, or if I didn't want a particular sibling to tattle on me after I did something annoying, or if I really didn't want to take the garbage out because we had a mean rooster that would chase us, even though I remember it being one-legged and it would still like chase us. God, can't you make the rooster unable to run today? Maybe we can eat the rooster. God was practical. And it was not that our parents would make obvious overtures to Christianity all the time, but I remember the Bible stories that my parents would read to us had a certain sensibility to them instead of abstract ones. As a family, I remember that we were active in the church. Our mom was a worship leader and dad and his family had gone to that particular church all their lives. 
we went to Sunday church services, Wednesday small group events, church picnics, summer softball games, church barbecues, pig roasts, and church retreats, just to name a few. And perhaps because we were a small rural community, and let's be honest, many were relatives, church as a small child often felt synonymous with family reunion. I also think it's important for me to identify my faith as separate from that of Western institutional Christendom. This distinction is important to me. I feel like my faith is ever evolving and has been particularly influenced by liberation theologians, womanist scholars and activists, and living in community with others who are committed to doing the steady work of following Jesus. And yet, even as an adult, recognizing that I'm no longer a child, my faith still feels practical. And it shows up and informs my journey of becoming because it helps me to think about living gently in a violent world and doing so with a global worldview. Obviously, I am learning new things each day. And I will be the first to admit to tell you that I don't have it all together. But because I have experienced God as an ever-loving presence, a chain breaker, a creator and a redeemer, a gentle witness to my pain and a supportive accompanying presence, I find that I feel rooted more often than not, even when I'm experiencing huge emotions on my adoptive journey like loss and grief. Some of the work of my faith journey has been the work of deconstructing and unlearning. And a lot of the work has also been in investing in relationships and deepening my own spiritual practices. While these pieces are not unique for transracial adoptees, I do think that this work can be particularly unique for transracial adoptees as both of these journeys often parallel the complex and nuanced journey of deconstructing and unlearning. Perhaps in short, my obvious answer is this one. One way that my faith influences my identity as a transracial adoptee is that it provides a new set of lenses to use when thinking about how I live in the world, how I make decisions, and how I choose to posture myself. What about you, Anita? Well, I didn't like this question. And then you reminded me that I wrote it. And I was like, why did I do that? Um, so while I wrote this question, and I do not like this question, um, I will answer it in the flip side. Um, Bonnie, I really appreciate your articulation of how faith enmeshed uh, everything we did, or faith was enmeshed, or we like foundation and because it was like Sundays and Wednesdays and occasional Thursdays, and then there's vacation Bible school for who knows how long, um, and small groups and youth group and yeah, everything. Um, and so while that was I would say God was practical, um, and I don't remember my first introduction to God. Um, I remember in the early days, grade school, um, that it wasn't unusual to spend lots and lots and lots and lots of time at church, um, involved in church activities. We spent more days at church than we did not, and that was normal growing up. Um, and so while God was practical, what was primarily formative for me was that God was also relational. Um, as I noted earlier, with experiencing God being present and having a safe space, um, that was huge. That was that still is. I also I lead worship now, and so I I I'm grateful that I get to lead people into that 
space and hopefully that they can encounter God in a similar way um, as God is as a safe, loving presence um, and very, very relational. Um, I would say, hmm, yeah, my, my relationship with God, I, the, why, the reason I wanted to answer the question in the flip is because I feel like my relationship with God is the lens through which I look at my transracial adoption experiences. Um, and like, yeah, I, I view it, it gives me a lens through which I see the world and I see relationships and my experiences through, um, through my relationship with God. And that, there's still a lot of deconstructing to do in looking at some of the not so fun experiences I had as a child or young adult or um, adult now, even though I still feel like a child 90% of the time. I wasn't gonna um, say. I see <laughs> I mean, like, I perpetually feel like a child and I'm like going to grad school and then there's an expectation to be being an adult. And I'm like, I don't know how this works. So yeah, mm -hmm. I still, I feel like a perpetual child. Sometimes immaturity as well, and sometimes just an intellect, mm -hmm. but sometimes they're the same, and then I really don't know what to do. Um, have you, sorry, but yeah, real I look quick, back, have you, like, seen that meme where it's, like, the therapist who is, like, I'm talking to my patient, oh, I should call a therapist, and then the, like, realization, I am the therapist. It just, like, came to mind when you were talking about this. <laughs> no, I haven't. Can you send it to Hello. me? That anyway, continue. Awesome. <laughs> um, so I, when I look back on my my journey, I see like there's there's pin people at pivotal times in my life that I'm like I want to be like that for someone else, and it's like so for I think it, I don't remember what summer it was, but there was a summer in middle school where you and I were at Camp Hebron for a I want to say two weeks. I think it was like seventh grade. One of them was. That sounds right. Like rough a week because mom and dad went to Africa or something. I don't know the reason, but we got sent to Camp Hebron for a week. And I remember. Um, got sent. I was depressed <laughs> and I didn't like life. And so um, for me, I had this plan. I was like, I'm going to end my life. And this mm. is Friday at the end of Vespers. I'm walking down the hill going to dad's car and the camp pastor comes up to me, he looks at me in the eye and he says, do not do what you are planning on doing. Mm. He said, you have more value and there's a plan and a purpose for your life. So do not do what you're planning on doing. And I had like, I hadn't told anybody about this. And, I, and so I go home and I was like, and I didn't obviously. Um, but like I've had in like numerous accounts of people walking up to me, not all because I'm suicidal, but there's people at pivotal moments saying, do not do this or go do this and have been such, brought such light and such, I don't know, I don't have a word for it. Just mm -hmm. when you feel like an outcast and someone's like, I see you, mm -hmm. I see you, I know you, I hear you, you're not alone. And I, I see that with the camp pastor. I I see that with um, that uh, speaking John life. with speaking life. But it's it's I feel like it's they're catalysts. Mm -hmm. So yes, they're speaking life. They're affirming life. They're affirming value. But they're also I don't know. It's like hearing your heart as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I see that 
so many times through mentors like John Heinley, um, through um, my college professors and advisors, through you and various family members. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I see a lot of the pivotal moments in my life as a transracial adoptee that, or instances where God has intervened mm -hmm. and I'm, I want to be that person. Mm -hmm. And so I find that my faith informs my identity by wanting me, by giving me the desire to be a catalyst, a relational catalyst for people to affirm them, to value them, to see them and create spaces for them that are life affirming and celebrate them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Anita, um, I just wanted to pause for a moment and just sit in what you shared. Um, I don't wanna bounce into another question because what you shared is deep. And I also um, want to hold space for that and affirm one, the vulnerability that you just espoused and also um, affirm that that takes bravery, right? Um, and I appreciate that mm -hmm. and I don't wanna, yeah, rush through it. I also wanna do an audience check and say, we shared, Anita shared some pretty powerful um, stories. Um, and, and if you need to take a break or, or step away from the live, we, we wanna honor that um, because we know that talking about suicidal ideation, et cetera, can be triggering. Um, I also am deeply grateful for the people who have stood and called life um, and spoke that for you and accompanied you in your pain. Um, I'm deeply grateful as a sister for people who are continuing to walk with you. I'm grateful to have you here. Um, and also for people that will continue that we don't even know who will continue to walk and support you as you journey. Um, I just wanted to say that before we go into the next question, um, because I think it's important to pause and to identify that. So next question. Yeah, I'm ready for the next question. You also went blurry on me, so I wasn't sure if, if I was losing you or not. And I also wanted to just remind nope. our audience that we are, we try to do these in three questions, which is about the 25-ish minutes. Um, and if you have questions, we like to respond to them. Um, again, if they're too deep or too personal, we might just say, hey, like I will DM you um, but we do really want this to be collaborative. Um, and we are going to, I think our last question is a question we received from our last live um, that we'll answer today because it aligns with um, this uh, theme. But if you do have questions, go ahead and put them on the chat. I don't think I can see them, um, but Anita will be able to read them for us and we'll be able to answer live here. So the third question that I had um, was from an audience member from our last, our previous live, um, and she asked, "Do you feel that having a that do you feel having a transracial adoption made you an advocate for the Black community and its culture?" I often notice people who are biracial or raised by someone outside of their culture and color tend to be empowered and driven to bring a 
awareness to the struggle, struggles we face versus being raised by people who look like them? And if yes, why do you think that is? So Anita asked me to answer this. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna take a stab at it. Personally, I think yes and no. It's hard to answer this question because so much of this question also depends on other variables like personality and that ever persistent question, nature versus nurture. Something that I have observed as a member of the transracial adopted community is that as adults, many of my transracial adoptee friends, community members, and myself included, act as educators in various industries. Um, but this isn't unique to just transracial adoptees. I think that many Black, Indigenous, people of color who are raised in predominantly white settings probably also have similar experiences. However, I do think that because many transracial adoptees were raised operating from a posture of education, that this naturally predisposes many of us to act as educators or bridges as adults. And what makes this question particularly tricky um, and itchy, right, is like that consent piece. To be honest, this question is hard, and I'll speak for myself, so often because we're not allowed to choose that posture. It just comes naturally for us. For many of us, I think this educational posture was a means of survival, not an outgrowth of us thriving. At perhaps its core, committing to doing the impossible work of educating others about one's humanity is visceral, exhausting work. And this educated education is necessitated because of violent systems, right? Which could lead me on a tangent about systems of oppression, adoption reform, and placement strategies, which include identifying racism as abuse. But suffice it to say that I think for me personally, the advocacy piece of not only comes from my personality and my lived experience, but a genuine belief that all of our struggles are inter interconnected. And that wonderful Audre Lorde quote where she reminds us that none of us are free until all of us are. That being said, I think that a lot of us do find healthy ways to do the educational work as adults, but it's not easy. Personally, I'm still learning to make sure that my desire to be an educator is coming from a healthy place. And I have a variety of checks and balances that help me do that. I'm not perfect at this. Sometimes I think I'm operating from a healthy and deconstructed space and bam, someone comments something hateful and nope, I'm unpacking again for days. It's a continual learning journey. Perhaps to kind of wrap up my thoughts, I will echo what I said last week. If this work is coming from a healthy place, I love to see it. If it's not, I hope that people are one, not being exploited and are two, finding deep wells of community, love, and support. Beautifully said, Bonnie. This is why I take notes, Anita. <laughs> <laughs> I should learn from you. Um, so we do have actually uh, two, if not three questions. Okay. Um, first one, and please correct me if I'm reading this wrong. How has your experience with discrimination affected your identity in light of being a TRA or vice versa? Like how has being a TRA affected your experience with, yeah, with discrimination or vice versa? 
So this could <laughs> take me um, days to unpack, but I think the first thing that I'll just offer, um, just because it's, there's a lot of layers to this, but the first thing that I just want to offer is, is this. Um, when I was talking earlier about the posture of education, it is one thing to experience racism and to go home and to have racism identified. No need to educate as to why it was racist, right? And while I did not have to do that every time, I realized, especially as a child, that I would experience something that I can now identify and name as racist, and I would go home and I would hear things like, oh, that person was just having a bad day. Oh, are you sure it was actually like that? Oh, they probably didn't mean it. On the previous live, I talked a lot about giving your child the tools to identify violence as it's happening. And I think so often about what it would have been like and how powerful it would have been to have the, the language to identify racism as racism because of two different specific reasons. There's a lot, but two ones that are coming first to mind. One, the power to be able to name it as not something that is Bonnie's problem, right? The power to be able to name it as this is racism, it's nothing to do with me, would have been so powerful because I didn't have that language, the way in which I internalized stuff was very unhealthy. Being able to have the language to say that was racist and that was a racist problem, it would have been uh, um, a powerful and a critical tool. Um, another reason that I think it's so important to be able to name violent systems of oppression, not only does it give language to communities and people uh, of communities who have been historically excluded, but then it also can really drive formational steps forward. Um, I tell everyone I'm a type A, I, I worked in legal marketing, like this is my jam as far as like driving solutions and coming up with strategies, right? So like being able to place it in a specific framework then allows me to have other tools as far as like, what do I wanna do and how can I move forward, right? Um, and I think so often about how it would have been powerful to be able to identify it and to have a, uh, um, a family system that was identifying it in the same way. Um, th there's so much exhaustion where someone says a racist slur to you and then you have to explain why it was racist and explain why it was violent and explain why it's harmful. Um, and to have had a family that could have articulately said, this is not okay, this is hate, um, and then was doing the work for me as allies, right, um, would have been so powerful for me. Um, and so that's the small answer that I would give for um, how discrimination has impacted me. Um, to be able to unpack it in a, a family that was already doing the work of deconstruction would have been uh, really powerful and also, right, um, I, I want to portray this accurately. It wasn't every time. Um, something that I'm grateful for as an adult is my parents and I, uh, as you can imagine from this live, just a little bit of my personality. I tend to be very type A. I tend to be very extroverted when I get excited about or passionate about something, y'all are going to know about it. Um, and so as an adult, having parents that are willing to listen and learn with me and commit to doing the work of anti-racism, especially as adults, um, it is really important to me. Um, and also I feel comfortable identifying it and lamenting that it wasn't there as a child. Um, 
it would show up in different spaces, um, but, but not consistently. I'm gonna leave a few more space for people to one, uh, process, um, and two, to see if there's any more comments. Anita, you didn't want to answer the question. You're just going to let me answer the questions. <laughs> I thought you did a fantastic job. And I, I, I think this is one of the areas that our journeys have been much, have been very different. Um, because I think for most of my journey, I either ignored it or didn't see it or didn't really want to recognize it or didn't really care to recognize it. Um, and now that I'm beginning to be being able to, to name it and identify it and say this, this is a problem. Um, I'm, yeah, finding, finding those spaces and those people who will affirm you Allies. when you're saying this is not okay. Mm -hmm. um, and they, in my experience, are few and far between. Mm. Um, and I'm hoping that as I continue this journey of delving into adoptee spaces and delving into different, like new spaces like grad school in a few days, um, that I can find more people who will be supportive and will be able to continually empower and support me, but also that I will have the ability to empower and support and create spaces for other people and to be able to walk alongside them in their journeys and naming things as this is hurtful, this needs to stop, um, and creating, creating places of change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I would say, I, I deferred to you on that one primarily because I would say you have a lot more lived experiences with uh, discriminatory and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we've had uh, lots of conversations about um, how we had uh, differing opinions and viewpoints as children and how we as chose children. or did Don't not just choose. Don't caveat to it there. <laughs> well, like, okay, as children and young adults and like today. 18, 19, 20, 21. Today. Like, well, okay, yes, today. <laughs> uh, the last 27 years of our lives. Um, 28, sis. Yeah. We are 28. Well, that's why I said last 27. Anyhow. <laughs> so when I was 30 the other day, uh -oh. I didn't, when I looked at the calendar and I was like, oh, no, I'm not Do quite not 30. Up, but anyhow. I am still much funny. <laughs> I'm not, but I'm not seeing, hang on one second. Yeah, I'm not seeing any more um, questions. Okay. So thank you everyone for holding space with us and for supporting us. I also want to give a shout out to the people who have walked alongside my twin sister, Benita, in her process and her experiences and her deconstruction and also reconstruction um, of identity and life and love and who are supporting her um, in her many um, endeavors um, to create systemic change for the better. Um, and I also want to thank everyone for tuning in. And I believe we are going to do our third live next Saturday. Yes. Same time. Same time. That's our final one. And I'm just seeing 
what did we title it? We said that the final one is adoption and relationships. Hmm. It was in the notes. Adoption and relationships. <laughs> I didn't look at that. I didn't see the I name. I even like, so I didn't know. I even turned it a different color and I was like, Anita, does this look okay? So maybe it's adoption and relationships. We will regroup and, and decide. <laughs> Plan on adoption and relationships. And if okay. you have any questions, feel free to DM me or Bonnie or put it on our Facebook pages. Um, and we will see you at 3.30 next Saturday uh, here on Facebook. Sounds good. Thank you, everyone, um, for your support and for tuning in today. And I will figure out how to leave this live. <laughs>